Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. This week, we're doing things a little differently with not one, but two guests coming on the show to talk about the court action they followed this week. First up, senior reporter Jimmy Hoover, our resident Supreme Court watcher, will tell us all about the oral arguments in Masterpiece Cake Shop, the closely watched case over whether a Colorado baker had the right to refuse to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. Then senior reporter Pete Brush comes on the show to talk about an ongoing trial over a multi-billion dollar scheme to duck sanctions by swapping Turkish gold for Iranian oil. It's a case with geopolitical implications that's given Pete quite the following in Turkey. And later on, we'll end the show by talking about singer Katy Perry's victory in her attempts to buy a sprawling former convent in California. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So, what are we what are we up to today, guys? Well, I just want to, I always like to square circles whenever I can. We talked about the legal entanglements of Meatloaf on the show mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. He's back in the news, uh, in of all places. The Loaf? Senate, Mr. Loaf? Your guy, Loaf. <laughs> right. He's back. And uh, in of all places, a hearing of the Senate Banking Committee. They were uh, they were discussing a Dodd Frank rollback bill, and right off the top, it devolved into no less than like five lawmakers referencing Meatloaf songs. Wow! Start, yeah, were they all terrible songs? They had to be. They're well, they're Meatloaf all they're songs. all mostly from two out of three ain't bad. It started with Sherrod Brown, the Ohio Democrat, saying as Meatloaf used to sing, two out of three ain't bad." But this bill doesn't even meet the Meatloaf minimum. Meat. <laughs> Oh, the meatloaf minimum. Then, I kind of like that. Yeah, that's that's got a that's got a nice snappy ring to it. Then uh, Senator John Kennedy said meatloaf also used to say there ain't no cooped vill in the bottom of a cracker jack box. <laughs> Senator, I, I don't even think I get that that's, reference. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. It's not worthy really of diving into the context of the points they were trying to make. It's just funny that like it was a cascade of it yeah, all. Yeah, sure. Senator Tom Tillis said also quotes meatloaf. He says, "Baby, we can talk all night, but that ain't getting us nowhere." Wait, were these all off the cuff? I, I don't know. I wasn't watching. Evan was watching. I don't know if aides were like sneaking them references to make. That was, I, it was <laughs> truly weird. But you'll, but you'll appreciate this, Amber. Uh, it all kind of coalesced when uh, the, the chairman, Mike Crapo, said, I guess I'm going to have to learn a little more about meatloaf. <laughs> and then, I, I was about to make a comment about me not identifying with any of these Congress members, but now I'm starting to. No, but then, and then Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, says, No, sir, you don't have to. Oh, <laughs> like, you that's don't have the to. Best. Not a meatloaf fan, Tim I Scott. I agree. Well, yeah. now I love Tim Scott. Yeah, there you go. I'm glad he said that. So we have a lot to get through today, guys. So let's just dive right into our two guests. I think that's a good idea. Our first story today is about a wedding cake, or more specifically, about the wedding cake that a Colorado baker refused to make for a gay couple, setting off the biggest Supreme Court case of the year. The justices heard oral arguments Tuesday in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, a flashback to the culture wars that pits claims of religious freedom and free speech against the ongoing battle for gay rights. Joining us via phone from D.C. to discuss the case that everyone was watching this week is Law 360's Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover, who was in the gallery for the big day. Welcome, Jimmy. Hi, thanks for having me. So for anybody who doesn't know this case already, can you just briefly catch us up on the basics of what's going on here? Sure. Well, uh, the case began in July 2012. I'm just going to give a brief uh, background of the facts. Um, uh, So it centers around a gay couple by the name of Charlie Craig and his partner, uh, David Mullins. Mm -hmm. Uh, In July 2012, they were looking for a cake for their wedding reception that was to happen in Colorado. They were actually getting married in Massachusetts, but uh, gay marriage was uh, not yet legalized in Colorado at the time. 
So they walked into Masterpiece Cake Shop in uh, the city of Lakewood, Colorado, which is right outside of Denver, and they told the owner, Jack Phillips, that they were interested in buying a cake from him, and he proceeded to tell them that it was his business practice not to custom design cakes for same-sex weddings, which kind of tees off a a more than five-year-long legal battle that uh, culminated in yesterday's uh, oral arguments. So the owner of this cake shop lost at the lower level, and he's the one who appealed this this case to the Supreme Court. Walk us through what he's arguing for why he believes that that he should be able to deny this couple um, access to to his services. So Jack Phillips, uh, being represented by the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, has argued to the Supreme Court that um, the Colorado anti-discrimination law uh, that was used to charge him uh, with discrimination uh, violates his First Amendment rights of freedom of expression and uh, free exercise of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly interesting is the uh, freedom of expression claim uh, in which he is basically saying that um, the law is compelling him to craft a message that fundamentally he disagrees with and is, mm-hmm. con- uh, is contrary to his religious beliefs, that message being uh, that he supports same-sex marriage. And in broad strokes, what's the defense of, of the Civil Rights Commission that, that's the, the respondent in this case? Well, I would say in broad strokes, the Civil Rights Commission is saying that um, on its face, uh, Mr. Phillips is refusing service as a public accommodation that holds itself out to the public mm-hmm. on the basis of uh, this gay couple's identity and their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, so for them, they argue it's a pretty you know, open and shut case, um, and it's, they've raised uh, numerous times the analogy between, say, uh, you know, African Americans or interracial marriages and mm-hmm. say, in saying that it's no different than denying service to someone because they are black or uh, what have you. So anyone who was even loosely following this on the news saw people lined up around the block just to get a glimpse of what was going on in the case. Jimmy, you were in the room. Tell us how the justices seemed to examine the issue. What were they saying? So the justices seemed to be uh, split along their familiar ideological lines here between the uh, you know four solidly liberal votes and the four uh, solidly conservative votes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, oral argument session began with a presentation from Phillips's attorney, uh, Kristen Wagoner, who again was from uh, Alliance Defending Freedom. And she ran into a lot of questioning from uh, Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Elena Kagan about where exactly to draw the line in terms of the amount of discrimination that religious people would be able to um, basically commit in the line of business. So um, one of the questions that uh, Justice Kagan asked was, well, if this applies to, say, a cake shop owner, would it also apply to... uh, jewelers to hairstylists? And there were very interesting answers by uh, the arguing attorney in response to those questions. For instance, she said that florists and wedding invitation designers could, yes, theoretically um, claim that their work and their products were uh, protected speech under the First Amendment. But she drew the line at hairstylists and said, absolutely not, Hmm. prompting uh, Kagan to kind of say, well, you know, some people say that cakes aren't really speech either. So how do you draw this line? It really seemed to be a point of contention among the the liberal justices. 
And what did we hear from from the conservative wing of the court? Well, from the conservatives, it was uh, like the liberals, I would say. It was kind of a parade of hypotheticals. You're right. You know, if, uh, say, religious people are compelled to um, deliver messages that they disagree with, what would stop, say, um, an African-American sculptor, for instance, from being compelled to uh, make a cross for a KKK service? Right. Or in the case of um, a pro bono legal group that's religiously affiliated, such as Catholic Legal Services, would they too have to then provide uh, legal services to uh, a same-sex couple with a matter um, relating to their same-sex marriage? That's all really interesting stuff, Jimmy. I mean, like you say, we we can go around forever on hypotheticals. I wanted to point out, I did notice a funny quote from Gorsuch, because he said at one point in the proceedings, in fact, I have yet to have a a wedding cake that I would say tastes great, which I agree with. And he, I mean, I, but I mean, but you're not trying the case. I think it's grounds for recusal. I mean, I'm not an ethics expert, but uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, he seems to always be making comments about food in all of his uh, oral arguments. You know, I've he's new. He's got to have a thing. He's like the food guy now. Like he's like, yeah, yeah. he's young and he's hungry. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. he's mentioned nice. his steak rub at least on on numerous occasions. But wow. I thought weirder than Justice Gorsuch's remark was the follow up remark by uh, U.S. Solicitor General Noel Francisco, who told the justices that he still had the top of his wedding cake in his freezer, which, according to one reporter, is at least uh, over a decade, uh, <laughs> nice. 10 years old. Say, my my wife point. and I still have ours. We got married a year and a half ago. That's not as crazy. <laughs> it's not nearly as weird. weird. Yeah. <laughs> so let's bring us back around to... Um, what is probably going to be the swing vote here. You talked about the conservative side of the court and the more liberal side. Uh, seems like Kennedy might be the real key here. Can you tell us what he was saying during the oral arguments? So I would say that Kennedy started off the case uh, appearing pretty sympathetic to the gay couple. Um, at one point, he said that uh, it would be an affront to the gay community to let uh, bakeries hold signs that said, we do not serve gay weddings. Uh, in another point, um, during Solicitor General Francisco's argument, he asked the government somewhat sternly if they would feel, quote, vindicated if bakeries around the country suddenly received these urgent requests to <laughs> refuse to bake cakes for same-sex weddings. But as the hearing went on, you know, he, he started to kind of seem a little bit more sympathetic to the other side. Mm -hmm. uh, when it came time for, for instance, the Solicitor General of Colorado to argue he said at one point that it didn't seem like the state's position was very tolerant or respectful of his position. Oh, whoa. And, yeah. yeah. Th this is kind of a tricky one for Kennedy, right? Because it seems like he's often been um, a proponent of gay rights and decided that way in, in some big landmark decisions. But he's also a big defender of free speech rights. So this pits those two things directly against one another. Right. Sources I've talked to about this story say that this one is kind of a debt come due for Kennedy in that mm -hmm. you know, there, uh, he's had these colliding or, you know, the, his dual legacies in the area of free speech and LGBT rights have kind of been on a collision course over the past few years. Jimmy, leading up to these arguments, you wrote an interesting preview piece about Kennedy's opinion in the last gay marriage case in Obergefell about how while that was a, a major landmark in favor of gay rights, that the wording he used could actually prove to be a, a hindrance in this case. Walk us through why that is. Sure. Well, well, as you guys know, the, the 2015 uh, Obergefell v. Hodges decision is the five to four decision in which the Supreme Court recognized a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. It mm -hmm. was considered 
you know, uh, the single greatest leap forward for the LGBT rights movement in, in the history of the country. Um, you know, overnight, uh, you know, uh, I think around a dozen state laws around the country, uh, barring the practice were swiftly invalidated. So, uh, it, it's interesting that, um, I found in reviewing some of the, the briefing, even before it had been gotten, gotten to the merit stage, that Obergefell really didn't rear its head in a lot of the briefing by the gay couple or the state in the case. And I, I think that has to do with the fact that some of the language uh, can be interpreted as beneficial to uh, the uh, Mr. Phillips' position. I mean, I would say that uh, Justice Kennedy really went out of his way in Obergefell to reassure religious adherents that they would still be able to use their First Amendment right to um, advocate against same-sex marriage. Right. He really included a pretty strong caveat in there that that you can you know that you that that you can still do this to a certain extent. Right. And I don't know that it's you know a legal grounds to de- mm-hmm. to decide the the masterpiece cake shop case, mm-hmm. but I think it really sheds light on you know, this struggle that Justice Kennedy has been having to kind of balance these two competing interests. So, Jimmy, since you were in the room, we know Kennedy's the swing vote. Do you have any indication of how he might lean in this case? I think if you were to score it, just based on the level of comments and questions that Justice Kennedy asked of each side, he probably was a little bit easier on Masterpiece Cake Shop and Mr. Phillips than he was on um, the gay couple and uh, the state of Colorado. That said, there's always you always run the risk of you know uh, uh, basically naked speculation when you're talking about what Justice Kennedy is going to do in a case because you know I don't think anyone would have predicted that he was going to uh, be ruling for the uh, same-sex marriage advocates in the Obergefell decision. Jimmy, I mentioned in an earlier question, it's become quite a scene down there at the high court, and there's a lot of eyes on it. I saw a really interesting anecdote from someone you talked to outside the courtroom in one of your stories. I think that'd be a good one to share with the audience. Yeah, so on my normal walk home from work, I usually pass by the Supreme Court when I'm working out of, say, Capitol Hill or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's been pretty much well documented at this point, but there was a line outside the Supreme Court of people waiting there for several nights before uh, Tuesday's oral argument. Like it was a rock concert, kind of. Like they're camping out for tickets. Yeah. Or or the the new, uh, you know, iPhone or something. I don't know. It was crazy. Well, because obviously um, the Supreme Court does not have uh, cameras in the court like they do in various state courts and some federal appellate courts. Um, So if you really want to get the full effect, you got to, you know, you got to camp out, basically. So I talked to a guy on Monday night named uh, Jason Hewitt, who had come up from Gainesville, Georgia. And this was kind of uh, his third major Supreme Court uh, LGBT rights oral arguments that he had attended. He had also gone to the Windsor case and the Obergefell case. So to him, this was completing a trilogy in Mm. his words. And so I asked him how long he'd been out there. He'd been waiting since noon on Friday. Wow. This is at a time for Tuesday arguments. I get it, guys. I mean, you guys know on the podcast how much I love talking about the Supreme Court. So I totally feel like this guy could be my friend. I I understand why he would camp out for this. December in Washington gets pretty cold, though, I'll say. (laughs) It does. Well, thanks, Jimmy, for bringing this story to us. We'll all be watching for when the decision drops. Thanks for having me.
Our next story is about a criminal trial over a complex scheme to evade U.S. sanctions on Iran. The blockbuster case is currently playing out in Lower Manhattan, but it has reverberations reaching as far as Turkey. At the center of the case are a series of Middle Eastern bankers, traders, and government officials who've been implicated in a multi-billion dollar scheme to swap Turkish gold for Iranian oil. The trial's already seen its share of theatrics, with a high-profile defendant flipping to cooperate with the U.S. government and all but implicating the president of Turkey himself. Here to walk us through the increasingly bizarre saga is Law360's New York court reporter and newly minted Twitter celebrity, Pete Brush. Welcome, Pete. Hey, guys. How's it going? (laughs) So it's been a big year for you, Pete. You had a bit of notoriety early in the year because of your coverage of the Ezekiel Elliott case. You became kind of a de facto fantasy football guru after that. And that's only grown the last couple of weeks. You're up to like 30,000 followers now on Twitter, many of them of Turkish origin because of your uh, day-to-day coverage of this weird sanctions case. Tell us what's going on here. Why has this been such a big boon for you? We've got a very high-profile trial in Lower Manhattan now uh, in which a very famous Turkish businessman is testifying for the U.S. government as a cooperator. Um, He's talking about an alleged scheme uh, by the Iranians and a Turkish bank called Halk Bank to avoid American sanctions targeting Iranian business. Um, the Iranians supposedly were suffering economically because of these sanctions, which mm-hmm. closed down their ability to do international banking. Yeah. And they started to devise ways to move their oil money out of this Turkish bank called Halk Bank First, by using gold trades. Mm -hmm. Then in 2013, when the U.S. closed that loophole, they then allegedly devised an entire scheme uh, where it looked like they were buying food from places like Dubai. (laughs) Right. But in fact, there was no food. But uh, the Iranian money was... It was all like illicit oil money, basically. Correct. So the U.S. starts arresting people for this. The U.S. arrested Reza Zarab Hmm. on a trip to Disney World... (laughs) With oh wow! His, with his wife and daughter, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in March of 2016, uh, and when they arrested him, he had a, a duffel bag full of 102 thousand dollars in cash, nice. which was for the trip. And as as he was in jail, it became sort of a, a cause of of the the Turkish government to to get him out, right? With both the Obama administration and now the new Trump administration. Correct. The arrest was very high profile in Turkey. This is, I don't even know what the equivalent would be in the U.S. Right. It's it's a huge huge big deal in Turkey. It goes straight to the top to President Erdogan's office. He's reacting directly to the things that are being said at trial. Right. Which makes a lot of sense why you would now have thousands of people in Turkey following everything you put on Twitter to see what's going on in the case. You're a liberator in a lot of ways, I think. (laughs) You're bringing your unvarnished coverage to the Turkish masses. But... um, I was praised for my objectivity. Well, that's good. At one point. We're all about that here. Um... Now, you mentioned Zarab's name, and he uh, is now testifying, but he wasn't always cooperating, right? I mean, it was kind of a big surprise when he flipped, right? It was a big surprise. He actually pled guilty October 26th. We didn't learn about it until roughly a month later. Um, And during that time when he was in custody, apparently he didn't like it very much. He paid one of his former lawyers (laughs) $45,000 to bribe a prison guard so that he could get Dayquil, Apparently, he smoked synthetic marijuana while he was in custody, <laughs> yeah. and he also used someone's iPhone to FaceTime with his daughter. All right, so th- that was a good that was a good tease because I know that came out uh, in in trial. You've got all these people watching you tweeting. You know what's been going on in trial. Give us sort of some of the highlights of of what's come out during during Zarab's testimony. 
the Turkish people are extremely hungry to hear anything and everything that this guy has to say. Mm-hmm. Um, as as you probably know, his wife is also very famous in Turkey. She's a pop singer. Yeah, yeah, I read that in your coverage there. And so, for example, when Zarab last week mentioned Erdogan by name and sort of tied him in to this alleged sanctions evasion scheme, yeah. um, Twitter went nuts. Mm-hmm. Even He basically implicated him, right? He I mean, did implicate him, yes. Yeah. And Twitter went nuts. Apparently, this testimony that he gave actually affected the Turkish lira for a brief period of time. Oh, wow. Uh, which tells you something about how many people are watching and, and what they're looking for, especially since this is all tied into the Turkish banking system as well. Um, and uh, they're just very interested in this guy. So this Erdogan stuff's been very explosive for the people of Turkey, but I've been really interested in some of the U.S. political figures that have gotten swept into this um, whole whole situation. Can you tell us a bit about that? So Reza Zarab, who apparently has an unlimited legal budget, <laughs> hired former Attorney General Mike McCasey and former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who both now work in big law. Mm-hmm. He hired them to try to work political channels in Washington and Ankara to secure his release from federal prison. That's so, so wild. Defense <laughs> attorney slash personal diplomat? Must be nice. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, and apparently they traveled to Turkey and met with wow. Erdogan. I remember the judge, I know this is before you were on the case, but I, but I remember reading our coverage. Like the judge yeah, yeah, was not yeah. pleased with this. I remember he wanted some clarity on their role here. But, and this this came up in trial like this this week, right? Or last week? I don't, yeah. It did. Um, the person who's on trial, who in some ways is a spectator at his own trial. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, we keep going at the Zarab trial. He's just like the star defendant or the star right. witness. Now, so the defendant yeah. is a banker. Named Mehmet Hakan Attila, who works, still works, apparently, still an employee at Turkish Halk Bank, which housed the Iranian money. Right. Um, His team asked Zarab, were you angry that Mr. Mukhazy and Mr. Giuliani couldn't get you out? And he said something to the effect of, I'm not angry at anyone, ma'am, which strains credulity, I suppose, but uh, (laughs) it did come up. And things came up this week about how reputable the things Zarab was saying, right? Like, wasn't there a question of whether or not he had lied to, or that that he would lie to to get out of American prison or, right? He himself now has conceded that when he was first arrested Mm -hmm. at Disney World, he told lies to the FBI. Yeah. Um, Good witness so far. (laughs) (laughs) Now he says he's committed to the truth. (laughs) <laughs> but of it's certainly but that's what all cooperating defendants say yeah, yeah. Right, i mean right. it, that's almost standard language yeah mm-hmm. so what can we what what uh, stage of the process are we in now i know we're we were slated for like a two-week trial how far along are we what can people expect coming up what can they expect when they're looking at your coverage well we can expect a little more of zarab on the stand i'm not sure he'll if he'll be done by thursday he should be then we can expect some more of the prosecution's evidence and then we can expect a defense case by Mr. Attila, which may or may not include witnesses who are currently in Turkey and haven't been identified, but who, according to Attila's defense team, are afraid to come to the U.S. because they're afraid they will be arrested. Wow. Pete, I would hate for us to go and end this story um, without getting into something that I think we've all seen uh, from following along with your coverage of the trial. 
some of these Turkish proverbs that that uh, that you've been reporting. Could you sort of explain some of those to us? Yeah, one of the great things about getting a bunch of Turkish people on Twitter following the case is they have a lot of interesting ways of phrasing things, and mm-hmm. a lot of people are talking about whether this is karma for Reza Zarab, mm-hmm. having once been a famous and rich gold trader and now being a cooperating witness testifying. Uh, and one of them involves chickens and roosters and gender roles and can't really be articulated <laughs> without... You know, saying bad words, but the other sure. one—the other one goes like this. It goes, uh, uh, it goes. When the flood comes in, the fish will eat the ants, and when the flood recedes, the ants will eat the fish. Uh-huh. And I suppose we still have yet to find out whether uh, Mr. Zarab is an ant or a fish or what. Oh, great! That that's so good. That's a perfect way to Thanks, end man. this, Pete. Thanks a lot. We'll be following your coverage. Thank you, guys. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and we want to talk about Katy Perry today. What's going on with her, Bill? Yeah, this was like a Mad Lib, where you're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Katy Perry was awarded $10 million sure. in court over her bid to buy eh. a convent. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like Mad Libs, for over sure. Over two intransigent nuns. <laughs> So what? You can, what was going? Yeah, yeah, you can see why we selected this one. Katy Perry really jumps Comet, off the page. Nuns, yeah. So what's going on, Bill? So Katy Perry agreed to buy this former convent on a hilltop for fourteen point five million dollars. Um, but two of the nuns who used to live at this this convent objected to the sale to to Katy Perry, and instead sold the property to this restaurateur um, named Dana Hollister. Katy Perry went to court, sued the developer for interfering with her deal to, to buy it. The deal hadn't been approved by the archdiocese. Um, and last month, she won an award that said that, that the developer had interfered and had, you know, li- about liability ruling. And then this week was awarded um, $10 million in damages over the, the the breakdown of the deal. This is really like a return. I mean, we're like joking around about it. This is a return to form for her. I don't know if you guys know Katy Perry before she was big pop star. She was like a big and like. Christian rock circles. I did know that. She's yeah. actually a, she was like a backup singer for you, you. You remember the band POD? Sure. Welcome to Southtown and all that. She was she they they were like a Christian rock band and that and she was so doing that. So did that not sway these nuns? That came up in the case. I so know, she yeah. so she went and and tried to plea her case to these two nuns who were <laughs> selling it off to the the other person, saying like she showed them a Jesus tattoo on her wrist and uh, you know <laughs> nothing and, sways stern nuns like a tattoo, right? Yeah. Tattoo, right? Yeah. Uh, it was like Meryl Streep and Amy Adams in their habits from <laughs> doubt, being <laughs> right. like you've strayed from the proper path, right? Young Perry. <laughs> but imagine yeah. like if you're one of these nuns and you're doing like a Google search on your very old computer. I don't know why I'm making nuns have a very old computer, but um, I can't say nuns are particularly technologically savvy. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, imagine them doing a quick Google search and, and finding like. I kissed a girl. Uh, a lot of girls live yeah. at convents. I mean, um, you know. So, like, I don't know. I could see their. I could see their beef. I think they uh, called her a witch in, in one of the reports I read. True? I don't know if we. Had, yeah, yeah, yeah. They said like she's like practicing witchcraft because she's all you know. Wow. Exhibiting her. Uh, well, we were yeah. talking about this off the air, I, and we couldn't really get an answer for it. Like, does Katy Perry want to live in a in a convent? Like, I mean, I mean. It- Presumably she does, but our story talked about how big this place is. It was 19,000 square feet. Fit it's a lot of nuns in there. 25 bedrooms, 29 bathrooms. I mean, it's a huge... When you say convent, we really mean like a huge sprawling Maybe estate. she's thinking about starting her own convent. It'd be a really special type of convent. That would be the dream of a lot of people. Maybe like... 
a teenager's dream. Oh, like would a it? teenage would dream. You know, <laughs> stuff like that. I'm sure she'll get there because she does have the eye of the tiger. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she's roaring all the way to the bank. Well, I guess her lawyers are with the. I don't know what's going on. Like these these attorneys. A- Amber, Amber save us the hook. <laughs> And this. <laughs> Kill me. We've gone. Let, we're calling it now. Sounds, this is sounds the right. End. Yeah. Thanks for the show today, guys. Um, it's been a good one. Thanks a lot, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. See ya. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests, Jimmy Hoover and Pete Brush, and our contributing reporter this week, Melissa Daniels. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything you've heard on the show, please check us out on the web at law360.com slash podcasts. And if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. See you again next week.